All right, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, whether it's a print copy or a digital copy, let me ask you to take your own out and look at the word with me in the book of Titus, the New Testament book of Titus. Titus is toward the end of your Bibles. Uh, Titus is after First and Second Timothy. It's before Revelation. So if you flip around somewhere in that general vicinity, you will find it, but it's only three chapters long, so don't miss it. Titus. Today we start a brand new series on the book of Titus. Now, I, I want to say as we start this brand new series how good the Lord has been to us throughout the book of Numbers and how timely the book of Numbers was for us, how it seemed like that was God's prophetic word for us during this season. And we're praying and we're asking that the Lord would do the same thing for us here as we go through the book of Titus over the next seven weeks. Uh, over the next seven weeks, if you come every week or if you listen every week to every message, you will have heard every word of the book of Titus read aloud, and we will talk about every verse of the book of Titus in one way or the other. We couldn't do this with numbers because that would have taken forever, but Titus is only three chapters long, so we're going to look at every single verse in the book of Titus over the next seven weeks. The sermon series today is the same as the title of the, or the sermon today is the same as the, the entire sermon series title, which is Good Works. Good Works. That's the theme of the book of Titus. Good Works. And so uh, let me pray for our time in the Word right now, considering we're starting a, a brand new book, a brand new study, uh, and considering how God had blessed us before with the book of Numbers. Let's ask Him to do it again. <clears throat> Our Father, right now as we come to your word and as we open up this book, uh, a new study for us right now during this season, we pray that your glory would shine through as it has these last 17, 18 weeks in the book of Numbers. We pray that you would speak into our lives with timely words for the things that we are going through. We pray that you would give us the timeless ancient words truth for all times. And we pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see the wonderful things that are there. We ask that you would incline our hearts to your commands, God. Would you satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love and your word? And God, would you help us to see your glory? Show us your glory, for if we could behold your glory and see it clearly, everything else would fall into place. And that is the power that you possess and the power that you have put into your word by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so let's read together the first four verses of this book of Titus. If uh, you're reading out of a different translation than me this morning, that actually might be a good thing. I'm going to mention a translation difference here in just a second, but I'm, uh, as usual, reading out of the English Standard Version. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll talk about it. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. <clears throat> now, 
with the first sermon in a series like this, we need to ask a couple questions at the very beginning for context. What is this book of Titus? And number one, I think the question that we need to ask is, who is Titus? Who is this guy? Now, you saw there that Paul wrote this book. Okay, Titus, as the title, is not speaking to who authored the book. It's to the recipient of this book. Okay, Paul is writing this book and sending it to Titus. Now, a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament, like Romans or the letters to the Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, they're written to churches, right? They're written to churches. But some of Paul's letters are written to individuals. Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Okay, and so this is one of those letters that's written to an individual that was included in the canon of Scripture. So Titus is someone that Paul's writing to. Okay, now look at verse 4. Verse 4 gives us a little bit of more, inf- more information on who Titus is. Paul refers to Titus as my true child in a common faith. My true child in a common faith. Here's what we know. Titus is not Paul's biological son. He's his spiritual child. Paul brought Titus to Christ. Paul brought Titus to faith. You see, we learn in the book of Galatians that Titus was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And what that means practically is he didn't have family to teach him about God. Right? Titus's family did not teach him about the Lord. Titus didn't have a mom or a dad who knew the Lord. And so Titus came to faith when he was an adult through the influence of the Apostle Paul, whom we know God specifically commissioned to take the gospel to Gentiles. So Titus is a Gentile, not a Jew, came to faith later in his life with no family background. He's a first-generation Christian in his family. And we also know that Paul discipled and mentored Titus, spiritually mentored him. He did the same thing with Timothy. Paul did this a lot, actually. Paul would take a young man in the faith, and he would teach him everything that he knew. He would spend years pouring into this man, giving him everything he had, so that eventually he could raise up that young man to a mature man of God whom Paul could send out, and then that man could like be an extension of Paul himself. Think about this with Jesus and the twelve disciples. Right? Jesus spent three years with the twelve, teaching them, showing them, pushing them in the back, giving them a nudge, helping them to do the work. And then eventually, Jesus leaves. And Jesus says, now you're going to be my workers. You're going to be an extension of me to the rest of the world. Well, that's what Paul is doing to Timothy and to Titus here. And let me tell you, there is hardly anything that will give you more joy as a Christian than spending significant time investing deeply in another person, spiritually, teaching them everything that you know, giving them everything that you've got, and then sending them out. There's hardly anything that gives you more joy as a Christian than that. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. When I was in college at the University of Kentucky, I was a freshman in college. I'm coming in the very first year. I don't know anybody. My uh, brother-in-law now and me, we decided to stay in a dorm on campus. And the very first day, there's an evangelistic Bible study in that dorm. And I go to this Bible study. And then it starts happening more and more. I'm like, oh, this is great. It's a Bible study in a dorm on a secular state university campus. So I keep going to this Bible study. But after a couple times of being at that Bible study, the guy who was leading the Bible study, his name was Matt, 
He's an RA in the dorms, a resident advisor. He took me aside and he said, hey, John, um, I'm going to need you to stop coming to my Bible study. And I said, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, um, you're, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. And he's like, it sounds like you've been a Christian for a while. And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, you're answering all my questions. And I've got a bunch of people who are not Christians coming to this Bible study that I want them to think about those things a lot. And you're, you're kind of just giving the answers to everybody. And I, I'm really doing this to bring more people to Christ. And I said, oh, well, okay, great. First couple weeks of college, I get kicked out of a Bible study, right? But then he said, but, but I don't want you to take this the wrong way. John, do you, do you want to be discipled? And I said, well, I don't really know what that means. And so he, he told me, well, discipling means I'm going to spend the next couple of years just investing in you and, and teaching you everything I know about faith, everything I know about following Jesus, about knowing the Lord and studying your, your Bible and sharing the gospel and spiritual disciplines and all this stuff. I'm going to spend the next couple of years doing that for you. Would you want that? And I'm a freshman in college. I said, yeah, sure. Now, in the providence of the Lord, Matt turned out not to be a, a, a kook, right? Turned out not to be some induction into a cult. But what happened was, also in the providence of the Lord, I spent the next two and a half years sitting under this man's teaching, like Titus sat under Paul, and he taught me everything he knew about being a Christian. Why was he doing that? Because someone else did it to him. And at some point, that someone else said, now you go do it to other people. Well, there came a point about two and a half years later where Matt asked me to meet him in the basement of the Christian Student Fellowship building on campus. And I, I met him down there, and he, and he gave me his Bible, the Bible that he used all the time to study and write notes in, and it was highlighted and marked up, it was tattered. And, and, you know, it was one of those Bibles that had his name etched in it in gold, like from Lifeway, and he actually had Lifeway put a plate on top of that, put my name on it, and then he gave it to me. And he said, all right, John, that's it. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're done. I don't have anything more to teach you. Now you're, you're a co-laborer with me in the gospel. Now you've got to go do for other people what I did for you. You've got to go do work. And I was sitting there, and I was, I was tearing up. I was crying. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? I've spent the last two and, two and a half years depending on this man's spiritual leadership. But I was also feeling overwhelmed and unworthy and proud and all that stuff at the same time. And he, he sent me out to do the work. And now, even though we were both at a secular university at that point in time, and I was studying to be a computer programmer, and he was studying to be a doctor... Matt's a minister now, too. He's a minister in Austin, Texas, and I'm a minister here. And there is a sense in which I am a child in the faith of Matt Dampier. Now, I've got family that led me to Christ, unlike Titus. So Titus, even more so, is a, a true child in the faith to Paul. But I tell that story to give you a sense of the relationship that Paul had with these guys, Timothy and Titus specifically. He discipled Titus. And now Titus is off doing the work as an extension of Paul himself. We'll see later in the book of Titus that Titus is in Crete. And Paul's writing him a letter long distance. Titus is in Crete. Now Crete is an island that's included in the nation of Greece. Right? It's not part of the mainland in Greece. It's, it's more of a southern island off of the mainland. But it's big enough to where there's multiple churches there. And there would have been multiple churches then. And you can see it. Paul and Titus had been at Crete... 
And they had planted churches there. And then Paul apparently left to go do gospel work elsewhere, but he left Titus there as a, a proxy, as a, an extension of himself, to make sure that these churches were strong, to make sure that they eventually could sustain themselves, that they were biblical, to protect them from the wolves that would come in and Satan's strategies to come in and destroy these brand new baby churches. And so this is where we come in in the book of Titus. I hope that gives you a little bit of context as to who he is and what Titus is doing. Titus is left behind to strengthen and support the churches that he and Paul had planted together. Okay? Now, I want you to notice something that Paul says to Titus. Look at verse 4 in your text. Look at verse 4. He says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote half of your New Testament, okay? Paul, if you remember, this is the same guy who was blinded by a light on the road to Damascus. He was on the way to go arrest Christians to persecute, persecute the church. And Jesus himself blinds Paul with a light and speaks to him from heaven and says, Paul, you're persecuting me. I'm your Lord. You're persecuting me. And he says, Paul, you're going to be my chosen instrument, the chosen tool in my hands to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Right? So that's the same Paul who's writing this letter. And Paul here says grace and peace. Now this is one of Paul's signature phrases. When you read Paul in the New Testament, all of his letters, you're going to see this over and over again in the introduction. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It always happens with Paul's letters. This is one of the reasons why, even though we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, I'm pretty certain it's not Paul. Just one of the reasons, we can't go into all those reasons, but it doesn't say grace and peace at the beginning of Hebrews. Right? That's Paul's calling card, so to speak. When you see that phrase, you know it's Paul. It's kind of like your favorite TV show. Your favorite TV show has an intro song, right? There's a song at the introduction of your favorite TV show, I would be willing to bet. And if you heard that from the other room on the TV, you would know that that show's on. Like for me, if I heard the Family Matters music in the other room, I would know Family Matters is on, right? I'm not going to sing it for you, but it's so distinctive that if you hear it, you know it's that show. Or you might think of like the Andy Griffith show and the whistling, and whatever it is, okay? Intros to, to shows, it's a trigger, that's the show. It's, it's a calling card, so to speak. This is kind of what Paul's doing here. But it's not just grace and peace, I'm going to throw this in so people know it's me. It's not just like what we might put at the end of our letters or our emails to people. It's more than that. Grace and peace are two of our biggest needs as human beings. That's why Paul says it. These are two of our biggest needs as human beings. You could say they are the solution to two of our biggest problems as human beings. Two of our biggest problems. What are those? Well, number one, our biggest problem as human beings. Our biggest problem is sin. Our biggest problem, every human being's biggest problem is sin. Because sin separates us from God. Sin breaks our relationship with God. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, what happened? They had to leave the Garden, never to return. That unbroken fellowship with God was now broken. That unhindered fellowship with God was now severed. And because of our sin, our relationship with God has been severed. But it's not like we can just work hard to get it back. You can't just work hard to get your relationship with God back. We've ruined it. 
And now it's like we're in a hole we can't dig ourselves out of. And the only way to restore the relationship between us and God is if God gives us what we do not deserve and if He gives someone else what we deserve. It's the only way to restore our relationship with God. If He gives us what we don't deserve and He gives someone else what we deserve. This is grace. By the grace of God, if you are in Christ this morning, you do not receive what you deserve. You do not receive what you deserve. In fact, you receive much that you would never deserve on your own. In grace, we receive the hope of eternal life even though we deserve the exact opposite. In God's grace, we receive the forgiveness of sin, even though we deserve the wrath of God. In God's grace, we receive His favor and a relationship with Him, even though we deserve to never even have an audience with Him, to never even know Him, to never even talk to Him. That's what we deserve. And Jesus, on the other hand, receives all that we did deserve. On the cross, Jesus receives the wrath of God for our sins. He receives the separation of God that should have been ours. Jesus takes what we deserve, and we take what we did not deserve. That's grace. That's grace. And so grace is the solution to our biggest problems. And so Paul says, grace to you. But he doesn't say just grace to you. He says, peace to you. Peace to you. And this isn't just like, oh, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, that's really nice. No, this is a a peace for your heart. It's a peace for your heart. You see, our second big problem is our guilty conscience. Every human being has it. Some human beings have shoved that down so far and so long that it doesn't work like it should anymore, but every human being knows what a guilty conscience feels like. And some, indeed, more than others. So you see, the gospel isn't just about your status, saved or unsaved. God is not only concerned with where you end up, heaven or hell. No, he's also concerned with how you feel here and now in your heart. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have a clear conscience. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. Peter here in this verse is talking about baptism and salvation, okay? But it's really interesting. He will bring in the topic of conscience to this discussion on baptism and salvation. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, and he's actually referring back to an analogy he made with Noah and the flood, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying you're saved when you're baptized, but not because you get dunked underwater. Not because water's washing off your body of any physical impurities. No, that's a symbolic act about what God is doing in your heart at that moment. Okay? At the moment of your baptism, you're crying out to God for a pure conscience. You're crying out to God to cleanse you of your sins so that you can not only go to heaven, so that you can not only be forgiven, but so that you can feel forgiven. That's what's going on when someone is saved, when God washes their sins away. God not only wants you to be forgiven, He wants you to feel forgiven. 
If Satan cannot keep you out of heaven, he will do his level best to make you miserable all the way there. Right? If he cannot accomplish his main goal to keep someone out of heaven, he will do his level best to keep you miserable the whole way there. But what did Jesus say? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus didn't just die so that you could go somewhere. He died so that you could have freedom from your slavery here and now. Freedom in your conscience. For those of you who have experienced a guilty conscience, you know. You cannot put a price on peace. Having peace in your conscience after being weighted down with the burden of guilt, having peace is worth more than all the money and gold in the world, right? You can't put a price on peace. And so when the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it doesn't just mean no hell. It also means you can be free from self-condemnation. You can be free from self-condemnation. How many of us know all too well the condemnation of our own consciences? You can be free of that in Christ. God wants you to be free of that in Christ. And so, Paul says grace and peace to you. Grace and peace are everything to us. This is not just a salutation, a little throwaway line. Grace and peace are everything to us. And indeed, Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5. Listen as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And listen for those two things, grace and peace. Paul says, this is another letter of the Apostle Paul, a different letter from Titus. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So grace and peace to you this morning. It's weighty. It's burden lifting. It's life giving. Grace and peace to you. That's what we need. Now let's spend the rest of our time this morning talking about the theme of the book of Titus as a whole. Okay? The theme of the book of Titus as a whole. The title of today's sermon and the title of the sermon series are both the same. Good works. The theme of the book of Titus is good works. If you read through the three short chapters in this book, you will find that Paul says the phrase good works six times. Six times in three short chapters. It's the theme of this book. So what's the idea? The idea is this. Your doctrine or your theology should affect your behavior. What you believe should affect how you live or what you do. It has to if you want to be a Christian. What you believe, your faith, your knowledge, has to affect your life in concrete, external ways. Look at verse 1 of our text. Titus 1.1. Notice how Paul says there, he's writing, "...for the sake of the faith of God's elect." and their knowledge of the truth. So we've got faith and knowledge, but then he says, which accords with godliness. Or if you're reading out of the NIV, it says these things lead to godliness. Faith and knowledge lead to godliness. And so in other words, your doctrine or your theology must lead to godliness in your everyday life. Our beliefs have to translate to our works. James 
In the New Testament, James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James also says, faith without works is what? It's dead. Faith without works is dead. Or faith without works is not faith at all, right? It's not true faith. In John 13, Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples, has just washed their feet. He's teaching them. And in John 13, 17, Jesus says, if you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay? See, as, as Paul writes his letters in the New Testament, he's got all kinds of little distinctive marks like grace and peace, but he's got another one. When Paul writes a letter, he will spend the first part of the letter talking about doctrine, talking about truth, talking about theology, and then he'll spend the second part of his letter putting that into practice, saying, because you believe those true things, this is how your life should look. This is what you should do. This is how that should translate into everyday actions. Right? Paul does this. One of my seminary professors liked to say it this way. Paul spends his first half of his letters saying, what's so? And the second half of his letters saying, so what? Right? What's so? So what? We're going to see the same thing here in the book of Titus. But I want to bring your attention to what I think is the theme verse in the book of Titus. Look at the very end of the book, not too far from the beginning, but chapter 3, verse 14. The second to last verse in the whole book. Chapter 3, verse 14. This is what I think is the theme verse of the book of Titus. So we're going to be kind of pounding this into one another's heads over the course of the next seven weeks. This theme verse, verse 14. Paul says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. Help our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, what do we know about faith and works? Well, we know from Scripture that if you have genuine faith, if you genuinely have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, over the course of your life, that will necessarily turn into good works. If you're really saved, you will have works. Okay? That's what the New Testament teaches. If you really have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will work things into your life in service to others, love for others, unselfishness, godliness, discipline, self-control, all those things, right? The fruits of the Spirit. If you have a genuine salvation, if your heart has genuinely been changed, that will produce good works. But because that's true, we don't just sit back once we're saved and say, okay, now I'm just going to wait for it to happen. Right? Now I'm just going to wait for the good works to come. Well, that wouldn't make any sense at all. Even though that's true, that's not what we do. We have to learn, Paul says, verse 14, we have to learn to devote ourselves to good works. And so here's one practical application of that. Young people, you need to spend time with the older people in our church who have been Christians for decades. Why? Because they have learned to devote themselves to good works in a way that people my age and younger have not yet learned. People my age and younger, we've still got a lot of work to do to learn to devote ourselves to good works. We're still being brought out, I mean, I know all of us are, but especially those of us who are younger, we're still being brought out of that living for ourselves life. We've got to learn to devote ourselves to good works. So this is why it's extremely important that people like me, my age, spend time with older Christians who've been, been Christians for decades because they have learned 
to devote themselves to good works in a way that we haven't. Here's one of the ways that I think this works itself out. Coronavirus, nine weeks of no church services, right? Well, there are some people in our church, there are, there are a lot of older folks in our church, that after nine weeks of not meeting together, they're going to get right back into the rhythm of church. They're going to get right back into it. Why? Because they've spent decades making church attendance a priority in their life. They've spent decades making that part of who they are, right? They, they, they almost couldn't function without that as a regular part of their life. That's just part of it, right? We've got a lot of people in our church who are going to come to church if there's a blizzard, you guys, okay? But they've just made it a part of their lives. But on the flip side, there's some younger people in our church and churches all across America who have not yet learned to devote themselves to good works like that. And it's not anything to be ashamed of. You're just, it, when, when you're younger, you haven't learned like that. And so nine weeks of no church services is going to be a much bigger deal to them and a much harder thing to turn right back around and get back into the habit for them than it is for our folks who have been Christians for decades, right? We've got to learn to devote ourselves to good works. Even though we know the Holy Spirit will produce good works in me, I've still got to work myself. I've still got to learn to devote myself to good works. And so we're going to see as we go through Titus, it's not enough to come to church three times a week and hear lots of good biblical teaching and have a big brain and know lots of Bible. That's important. Right? Knowing your Bible is important. If you go out here and try to live a life full of good works without knowing your Bible first, you're going to fall off in an unbiblical direction at some point. If you do not know the truth and you just try to live passionately and zealously for Jesus, you will fall into unbiblical territory if you don't know the truth. You have to know the truth. All of our ac actions have to be based on truth. Biblical theology. Truth. All right? We're never going to knock theology here. We're never going to knock knowledge here. But it's not enough to just pour knowledge into your head. It has to translate into good works. It has to translate into love for others, service for others, disciplined godliness, increased holiness. You can have the, all the right knowledge, but if it doesn't translate, it's worthless. It's like 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage. Paul says, if I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and faith to move mountains but have not love, I'm what? I'm nothing. Think about it. Satan knows all the right theology. Satan knows the Bible better than any of us in here. He's been around for thousands of years. And he uses that knowledge to hate people. And so congratulations if you believe all the right things. But what difference does it make to those around you? And so I'm going to end with a couple questions. A couple introspective questions for you to go home with. And as I ask these questions, I'm praying that these questions will give us a hunger for the rest of the book of Titus. And these questions will cause us to take a brutally honest, hard look at our own hearts and our own lives. So here's question number one. If someone looked at your life and compared it with the life of a good person who was not a Christian, would there be any noticeable difference at all? Think about it. If someone looked at your life and compared it with that of a good person, but one who's not a Christian, would there be any noticeable difference? 
Or you could ask it this way, second question. Could you be the same person you are today without Jesus? Could you be the same person? Could you do all the same things? I'm talking about your outward life here, your observable life. Could you do all the same things you do every day without Jesus and it not really make a difference? That's the question. And if you're anything like me, and these questions are making you squirm a bit, notice I said if you're anything like me, then I think the rest of the book of Titus is really going to help us out. Because we're going to constantly be asking ourselves those questions. And we're going to constantly be asking, what difference does my theology actually make? How does it actually translate into a life of godliness and a life of Christ-honoring sacrifice for others into a life of good works? That's what we're going to be talking about for the next seven weeks. So let's pray and let's ask God to bless the word that he just gave us and the word that he's going to give us. Our great God, thank you so much for your good word. I pray that as you say in the book of Isaiah, that your word would not return void, but it would go out and it would do its work in our hearts. It would accomplish your purposes. It would pierce our hearts and our souls. It would put the question to us and cause us not to be able to look anywhere else but to face up to it, to face up to the reality of our lives. And I pray, God, I pray that you would turn us to you. Melt our hearts. We we lay ourselves before you. Whatever you have for us, God, no matter how uncomfortable, give it to us. For your glory, for our own holiness, and for the sake of others who might come to know your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.